This is Lekko. I'm Lucy Dearlove. We're doing this work. I said to my mum one day when we were doing something else, I said, what do the enslaved eat during Christmas? My mum didn't know, but she's a very good teacher, and mum and you know, that sort of thing. She said, I don't know, but why do you go look it up? Then maybe we can make it into an exhibition. <laughs> so I looked it up. It was hard to find things, but then when I did find things, it was really interesting. And that pretty much everything we eat now, even jerk, not rice, but chicken, all came from things that the slaves ate. So it was all things, and some of actually this cake in particular, this is something that was invented because at night when the master had gone to sleep and the slaves were still awake, they made that at the leftovers that they managed to forage away in the day. This is Linda and her mum, Catherine. Together they founded Museum And, the National Caribbean Heritage Museum, and for the past few years have been organising and curating exhibitions in and around Nottingham, all connected to Caribbean heritage. They've organised Museum And as a museum without walls, so they don't have one permanent space, instead seeking out different spaces where they can best connect with the community they want to reach. They've covered subjects such as black representation within the doll industry, the history of Caribbean funeral traditions in the UK, and this one, the Edible Exhibition, which, as Linda says, was a hands-on look at what the enslaved ate at Christmas in the 17th and 18th centuries. So we went to a takeaway, which was the most popular takeaway in Nottingham, and we said to them, can we put an exhibition on in here? So the actual exhibition was the food that you could choose from. With the food came a little pack that had like an information guide, exhibition guide, that told you a little about everything in the history and why we had the foods and what was in the foods and that sort of thing. And it was great because this this um, takeaway was quite mixed. So you had people from literally dustbin men who came because I spoke to them, to politicians that came in and all heard about it. Mm-hmm. Some of the foods weren't so good, like Bush took a trial sort of things when you can see why they died out. <laughs> but other ones, you know, we're still eating today. Things like sweet potato puddings, mm-hmm. things like that, that um, thing about the slaves. I think that's the oldest recipe. It's called Toto. That's this cookie. Catherine was pointing to a delicious-looking loaf cake on the table between us at her home in Nottingham, which was laden with Caribbean sweet treats. I came to the city to meet them both and to talk to them about the history of Caribbean food in the UK. But what's especially interesting about the museum's research is that when it comes to the food especially, they've traced dishes much further back, back to the period of Caribbean history that long predates the Windrush generation in this country. And that in the UK especially, we're reticent about properly and publicly confronting. So that is 100% slavery food. Because we were given supplies by the slave masters, which was never enough, and it was the same thing because it was cheap if you buy it in bulk, and they fed us on that. When they asked us there to plant their gardens and their vegetables and whatever, we slipped some in the forests where we knew they wouldn't go. So then we had our own little supply thing going on there. And it was those sort of things that then people turned into a change in variety in their food. So when you get home at night, it was quick and easy to make, just a bit of flour, a bit of whatever vegetable you could get that day. You mix it all together. Sugar was plentiful, obviously. And so then you bake it. Again, you didn't have a lot of um, 
fire or fuel or whatever. So it's how you had to cook that to bake the cake that was also quite inventive. You have the coal fire um, here and then you have a bit of metal and then you put the cake pan on top of that and then on top of that you put another piece of metal and you put coals on top. So the phrase is you've got hell at the top which is the fire, hell at the bottom, which is the original call, and in the middle is the hallelujah. When those two things have worked, the middle bit is to die for. I'm um, going to say it in the Caribbean accent. That's why I was like, I'm not saying it. You say it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm not very good at Caribbean <laughs> phrases, but it's something like, hell at top, hell at bottom, and hallelujah in the middle. <laughs> The hell at the bottom, people used to put in the equivalent of roasting potatoes. So you put what other the vegetables, so that can be cooking at the same time as well. So really inventive. That's what I loved, why I love about my history, because I thought it was just people didn't know who we were. But when I realised we were at the forefront of so many things, I'm like, you know, 10 foot tall and my shoulders are back and I'm really proud of that. Because I think what a good idea to do that. After pouring me a bush tea while warning me of its bitterness, Catherine and Linda talk me through the well stocked tea table between us. Yeah, should we try it? Should we try it? No. Yeah, We've asked you to come because it's Friday, end of our work week, and this is the sort of thing we sit down and think this is why we're doing it to keep traditions alive. There were two things that. Um, Caribbean cooks use all the time. That's coconut and ginger. So this is the cake you were talking about where you cooked it with the coals and the coals above and below and this one. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And what's it called? Toto. Tio. Tio. And these are the coconut and, gi- coconut and ginger. Yeah. This is called coconut drops, which is mainly something that's uh, made in, in Jamaica. It's a Jamaican delicacy. My favourite thing in the world. It's also a Jamaican delicacy, but we've found out it's come from the Portuguese Jews. <laughs> They're the ones who introduced that to us in the 17 or 1600s. 1600. Yeah. 1600. And um, that's um, pastry flour and whatever. And it's called a pinch me around. So, depending on whether you're from the villages or the towns in, in the Caribbean, you have different names for it. Do you get what I mean? Because when you move into a town, you think, I won't use that. This is actually called pinch me round. So do you mind if I touch it? No. Because you pinch. And it's round. It, and, it, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it goes round. But the thing is to make it all nicely patterned. So a little girl would learn how to present food food well. But that that's what that is. And then the grated coconut inside this again is another jamaican one and this is called pink on top or if you say in a caribbean way pink at top (laughs) and then um, the white bit on the bottom so you make you make the sugar cake yeah more coconut and the white on the bottom and then you color it so that's really fancy and it looks good if you're having a, a tea party but these are delicacies that you tend to have from Friday night, school's finished, work's finished, and that you eat. And it's good street food because you can carry it with you wherever you go and just pinch off a bit uh, as you eat it. It's a bit like what um, fried dumplings, Jamaicans call them fried dumplings. We call them, we being people from St Kitts, call them Johnny Cakes. Well, Johnny Cakes is a corruption of journey because you took them on your journey with you, yeah? 
And it's a bit like these, you know, you're working in the fields, you're going from plantation to plantation because you've been hired out. But at least you've got your food with you that's easy to carry at any time. Now, this one we call bun. And now, again, if the camera, we'll just say, do you want some bun? But now, if you see it in the shops, it's spiced bun. We're very posh. And usually it's bun and cheese. But the English bought their hot cross buns in the good old days. They gave it to us. And our cooks had to try and make this English hot cross bun. But we never do things. We don't follow recipes anyway. Caribbeans, we bit of this and a bit of that, a little of this and a little of that. And something amazing comes out. And so we've turned the hot cross bun into bun. And we now eat bun with cheese in the main. But I hear some people have bun with fish, fried fish. So when I was first reading about Museum And, I read an article that Catherine wrote a few years ago for The Voice, and it's something that's really kind of stuck in my mind ever since. In it, she wrote about bun and cheese, talking about its origins, as she mentioned just there. But in the article, she also went on to talk about how the combination with cheese came about. Now, my family are from Yorkshire, and we've always eaten spiced fruit baked things, such as fruitcake, uh, Christmas cake especially but also kind of less frequently hot cross buns as well with Wensleydale specifically which is a, a if you're not familiar with it is a very kind of bland white cow's milk cheese and it is quite a regionally specific habit uh, as I found out after I moved to London and my mum came to stay and offered my friend a very thick slab of this cheese with some Christmas cake to great bafflement he's a convert now but it was a surprise and it's thought that actually it was Yorkshire slave masters with their related dietary customs that could have brought the original concept of spiced fruit buns with cheese to the Caribbean. And this is what I'm talking about when I say that this is something that isn't widely confronted in this country. While maybe more recently black history has come into more mainstream consciousness, though not nearly enough, we still seem very unwilling in the UK to examine our own part in slavery, even when the evidence is right there in front of us. And Mun and Cheese is just one really specific example, and there are many others. Some islands look down on other islands in the Caribbean, so there's all that infighting. But we tend to, most islands tend to laugh at Jamaicans because in the good old days, they don't do that now, but in the good old days, they always added an H to things. So they'll say, can I have some egg and bacon? Bacon, bacon, egg? <laughs> no, you mean egg and bacon, but they always added an H. But that's is a Derbyshire thing. Top end of Derbyshire, Chesterfield, going that way again going further north they they add an h to their words so you can tell who's colonized where and whatever and i thought oh i have to treat the jamaicans with respect now because they <laughs> so you know I, I did the museum because i wanted our people to be proud of where they come from but it was never about this sort of thing. I didn't know about the impact of different slave owners and different regions of the country and so on. And I'm so glad I've done it because I've taught myself about my culture. And as I say, I'm now 10 feet tall. I used to be five foot two, but I'm now 10 feet tall. 
asshole. <laughs> because we're telling a story that, I'll say most, I'm probably saying all, mm. museums don't tell unless it's Black History Month or unless it's now Windrush Day and they feel that they have to tick that box. So for our people, and when I say our people, I don't mean just black people. I mean people who have um, you know, a mixed family or people that just have that connection, whether they love our food, our music, whatever it is. They want to come, they want to learn more and they want to hear more because our story's not really told. So if you're interested in that story or any of that culture, people seem tend to come to our exhibitions. So, you know, even though we're a Caribbean um, museum and we're Museum Without Walls, there are all sorts of people coming, from the trendy whites to the um, the woke, the woke people, and then Meghan and Harry types, and then <laughs> I love them both, by the way. And then you get um, you know um, from politicians to um, yeah. education people to people that work in care homes, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing, or just families as well. And it's a story that they haven't heard of, so people, it's it's really exciting to see the children, especially leaving wide-eyed, like. I don't think we did all that as people. It's usually the story that you hear from black people is something negative or something embarrassing. You know, being a black child going to school and going to museums, they may show you, but they'll be showing, well, what we call embarrassing. It's not really embarrassing because we still survived after all that adversity, but as a child, it's just, you know, the Zulus with their clothes on or when we did Black Doll exhibition. The reason why I did that was because when I went to um, Museum of Childhood, I was so embarrassed Everyone's like, oh, there's black people. They look at you, the only black child in the school. And I'm like, is that how you are at home or whatever? So it's it's telling the truth about our story and telling it ourselves, for ourselves. We can tell the real story, not just the, the part that people want other people to know about you. I have been preparing for this moment, you know, all good things, you know, you prepare. And my daughters had been doing exciting degrees and I'm, I'm a, one of these hands-on mums. Wherever my daughters go, I go, I keep my beady eye on them. And uh, Linda in particular, not that she was a bad girl, but her, side, her subject was much more exciting. She was doing fashion. And so I wanted to get involved. And, and while she was hunting around for old fabric and buttons and things like that. I was looking for old stuff about black people. Do you so know what I mean? We used to, to go to, prove... to um, flea markets and travel over the whole country and do that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, that was great. On Sunday, Saturday. See if we can find about the black presence. And then I said, one day when I retire, I'll do something with all the information that I got. Mm. I think perhaps towards the end, so it took me three years before I got anything of significance to collect. And what um, did you find? Uh, about that. Some old copies of Illustrated News and um, I forgot what the gentleman's Punch and things. But again, it was the cartoons in Punch, which mimicking postcards and some stamps and things yeah and that sort of thing but you're also a teacher yeah and then I was a teacher and then in 1997 the government brought out that a new scheme for education where they were dividing the pupils between those who were gifted and talented and those who were underachievers I was given the job in my school to oversee that because it was like well we can't be bothered to do that but that first year it was okay I loved it because it was everybody in the school. By year three, two or three, I was noticing it was only black kids. 
they had become all of a sudden underachievers. So I, I promised myself I'd do something to prove that black people are achievers. We can rise to the top. And in fact, the people that came to England as part of the Windrush were our achievers. They were our teachers. They were our, our top um, people because they could afford to come. Yeah, so right. they wanted to emigrate and, and show what they could do, just they weren't allowed to. So needs must, you take the jobs that were on offer. I did my, my degree and then have gone on to prove that. And so I then created a, a museum. And to be honest, I didn't know, I, I started with what I know. They say you should do that when you're writing a book or anything. Start with what you know. And I knew about the Windrush. I wasn't prepared to do slavery or do um, Tudor England because, yeah, there were blacks around for all of that. But I hadn't, I didn't know enough about that. I started with what I know. And so I came up with this idea of the sort of contemporary thing where people could give their stories. It's no use waiting until they've died off and then going and doing research. And then Linda came along with this. Let's do a museum without walls. The whole place is our stage. We'll do it. We'll get on with it. And, and it's worked really well. And our people have embraced it after a little bit of a push and trying to convince them that their story is good enough. Is sort of the reason, one of the reasons you decided to make this a museum without walls that you wanted to redefine what a museum was in some way because you'd had that experience with what museums felt like to you? Like, did you want to completely, you know, why should your museum look like another museum when you are trying to do something completely different and right these wrongs, in a sense? I'm not quite sure it was, it was like that. We went to the council and we said, we're going to do a Caribbean museum. We've got, you've got all these buildings. Can we have one? Because they were giving community assets and uh, they weren't very keen to do that. And so, well, I'd already invested a year doing my MA. I'd already invested in getting the thing going a year after um, I'd graduated. So we thought, well, if we're not stopping now, you know, we started something, we're going to finish. And then Linda came up with this amazing phrase. Well, actually, the, the council said to us, I won't say who, but we are based in Nottingham. I won't say the person's <laughs> name. They said to us... Um, why do you have a Caribbean museum? Black people have no history or heritage. Black people don't go to museums. So why do you have one? And the next thing was, well, if you do have one, it has to be in, in the black neighbourhood because only black people go to it. And I said to the person, it was a man, I said to the man, have you been to the Caribbean? He said, yes, I have. Of course I've been to the Caribbean. I go all the time. And I said, well, you're white, you're not black, so why do you go to the Caribbean? Then he paused and he goes, oh, yeah, OK. Mm. That's how it was. I thought, I'm, yeah. Working for my mum, sometimes I do feel fearless, I can say what I want. But I wouldn't really say that if I was working for somebody else. I thought, okay, she can't really sack me, can she? Um, I think, even though you, you gave that answer, the reason you did that MA was because you knew there needed to be a change in the first place. Yeah, I think there was, there was nothing there. I didn't see me in any of the museums that were around. And if they were, it was Africa back in the day, which just uh, perpetuated that story that we were... Um, running around with hardly any clothes on and so on. And it wasn't this, this, the history that I knew um, or about the, the people. So I wanted to let people know that we've come on, yeah? I don't think of England as being the Angles and Saxons and running around and dressed in blue woad and stuff and stuff. So why should they sort of describe us as back in, in the day? That's what I wanted. I, and... Um, 
my children were growing up and to coming to the point where they'd get married. And I thought, I've got to get this sorted before I have grandchildren. Otherwise, you know, they're going to be embarrassed or, or not know the full story. So lots of reasons that culminated in me wanting to do something about presenting the black story. And then Linda came up with the idea, well, if they're not going to give us a building, we'll do a museum without walls. And Everybody loves that phrase. We, we get invited to things just because of that phrase. And we know that museum, that's really strange. It's very different. Tell us more about it. And so it gives us an opportunity to talk about a whole lot of things. Because we tell difficult stories, but in a nice way, in a way that well, I don't know. I said we're nice, perhaps not, nice isn't a strong word. We try not word. to depress anybody or to upset anybody or to downplay anything. We try and tell the truth as the truth is, but in a way that people that don't see your point of view will, will actually stop and say, even though I don't agree with you, I understand. Yeah, that's it. Sounds that's easy. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, they do, that's really and it's true. nice when they say that, and or we have a discussion about something. If if you're in the space where the exhibition is, and then you tell them what you thought and what, you know how the reality was for you, and then people come back to you and say, "I never thought of it from that point of view." That's been really satisfying, mm. isn't it? Mm. And um, we we were invited to do an exhibition at this place. It wasn't a, a black area, you know, we, and we thought, oh, all that effort they've got to put into it, yeah. And um, so we thought we'd go along. Anyway, we set up our stalls and everything. And on this occasion, more men than women visited um, the museum. It was in a bus station, and I suppose a lot of them had worked in the on the buses or in that sort of industry, mm. industry related. And so they came along and they were telling us stories. And that was, for me, the most upsetting exhibition we've ever done because the stories the guys were telling us about all the awful things they had done to black people in the 50s. And we were mm. like, our parents coped with that and they never told us that they went through that. We call ourselves mother confessors as a result. We're like, even this story, we've still got a smile on our face. We still be, we're still encouraging them to talk because we want to hear the stories. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so yeah. they're telling, but I'm like outraged. Mm. Do you know what I mean? To hear that. And things like um, they didn't let um, guys have um, tea breaks because out in the in the jungle, you don't have tea breaks. And um, what was the other the one? Oh, you, yeah. You can't use our cups because well, we might get diseases, you know, never, whatever. So you had to bring your own. And then if you brought your own Caribbean food, oh, that's a bit poggy. We don't eat food like that. <laughs> and now yeah. it's so very different. And we would have it to listen. But the saddest was about the woman who... How to eat her lunch in the toilet because I won't let her sit anywhere. That was awful. Um, so, yeah, you hear things like that. And then the funny thing is that these men say, oh, yeah, then my son and my daughter married a black person and I've got black grandchildren. So that's why they feel really embarrassed because they never they never expected that to happen or they have a black person or mixed-race person in their family. So it's yeah, sort of and they thing. want their children, their grandchildren, to know the stuff that we're presenting. Yeah, because <laughs> there's this other side of their heritage wow. that they don't know where to get information from. Do you know what I mean? 
so yeah, that that was our worst mm-hmm. one. Um, oh, at the pubs as well with the thirteen glasses. Yeah, and um, Nottingham was the place that had the first race riot, and that was because in here in Nottingham, uh, most pubs would like, allow only thirteen black people in at once. So if you went in as a bigger crowd than that, and the thirteen glasses, because we don't know what we might catch, you <laughs> had to wait till your friends had had a drink, and then you could have drinks. So that went on for a while, and then you know the worm that turned, and we were like, we're not st- standing for this. And um, one good thing out of that is then we thought we'd create our own social spaces. So we had shabins and all the other sort of house parties and things like that. Till again, they didn't like that. And then started complaining there and and so the other thing was to have the riots we're like saying you know our money is good our manners are good this is a public place so on and so on yeah and so the, the, the riots ensued I came to England when I was seven from St Kitts yeah, the best Caribbean island. We arrived in England and we landed at the airport and the, the, and the ship, the docks. Uh, the docks, thank you. And they were selling soup or offering soup. Well, the English definition of soup is not the definition of us for soup. So most soups is just water. Especially in those days. Yeah, in those days. <laughs> but we have vegetables in it. And so they were selling this soup and people were like, Man, where where the the vegetables, where the hard food? Because we'd have green bananas, yams, and whatever in our soup. Yeah, like big chunks. It's like a meal on a plate. We don't just have like a cup of soup that you're not back. So we were like, felt that from the moment we landed, we were being cheated. You know what I mean? (laughs) Of short changed in what we had. So that didn't help with with good feelings. And then when you went to the shop and you asked for things that we would normally have, yes for rice good old staple they would offer you pudding rice because that's all they had and we didn't they didn't know we would go with this doesn't look right but it might mean rice and you go you cook it and it doesn't work because it's the right but in those good old days you could bring stuff with you so that's one thing that kept the community together because if the next lot would come in, they'd bring all the stuff that we could get here in England. So it was so good to meet it with somebody who just arrived. <laughs> I so wanted to be a trendy teenager. I arrived at seven and by the time I got to 10 or 11, I thought I was a grown woman. What do you mean? I knew everything. And I wanted to be like my English friends who were allowed to have boyfriends, which we, we are not allowed to until you're 25 or, or more. Um, <laughs> not quite that, but you know what I mean. And then the other thing is we weren't allowed to play on the streets. Only the worst of the worst were allowed on the streets um, for people. Um, played at home or in the back garden or whatever. But all my friends seemed to hang about on street corners and meet their mates. And that was the one thing I craved forever. And then when you hung about on the streets, you ate chips out of newspapers. 
And my mother, what? Eat on the street? What will our neighbours think? You know, we don't do that. You eat off a plate and you come in the house and you sit down. So for a long time, I didn't have chips. So I was about 14 before I finally got my own pocket money. I could sneak out and have chips before I got home. So my parents never knew I'd let the side down. <laughs> You're just hiding down the alley. <laughs> so things like that. Was and it worth he- it? Did it live up to expectations? Yeah, it was. Just when you're doing something that's forbidden, it's just sweet, isn't it? Whether you enjoy it or not. (laughs) What I loved about English food was that English seemed to live on pies. God, you're a people with pastry. (laughs) There's nothing you guys can do do with pastry. Or put anything in a pie. So I quite like that. A mashed potato. A mashed potato. Even now, <laughs> I'm, I'm an addict for that. Christmas meals and whatever my children know, they've got to do me some mashed potato. <laughs> and we had it with truffles this year because we're posh. <laughs> oh, wow. That is posh. <laughs> we call those, the potato that you have here, Irish potato. And we eat that, but that's only second to things like sweet potato and other traditional um, things, yeah. Again, I felt I was pushing boundaries because I was eating a lot of Irish potatoes. (laughs) But what my mum, my mum was a brilliant cook and I think she was, no, I know she was the first black school cook in Nottingham. So she was then able to make, to do the civet puddings and all the tarts and things that English people had. The thing that I missed, I missed the sweet stuff like the sugar cake, the coconut and, and things like that. So my mum was able to do that and did that. But my my, friend, my English friends, I had my first birthday party when we thought we'll, we'll invite English people to this now. Because normally I'm such such a large family. We've got enough people for a birthday party. We don't need anybody else. And so and we, and we offered them all these Caribbean delicacies. And they were like, oh, that's a bit sweet. Oh, we don't have coconut. Oh, we don't do this. And I was like, my mum had gone to all this trouble to prepare the best of Caribbean for them and they were not having it. Catherine Ross and Linda Louise Burrell are the founders of Museum And, a social history and community museum dedicated to preserving Caribbean history, heritage and culture in original and unusual ways. They are based in Nottingham and you can find out more at museumand.org or follow them on Twitter and Instagram at museumand underscore. Thank you to Catherine and Linda for their time and generosity and for an amazing Friday tea They packed me off home after the interview with all the leftover cakes, which was amazing. I'm going to put some pictures up on the LECA website so you can see what everything looked like, uh, lekapodcast.com, and there'll be uh, also photos on Twitter and Insta, of course, at LECA Podcast. You can subscribe to tinyletter.com forward slash LECA. The latest newsletter is all about the anatomy of a Caribbean tea table. Uh, I sent a, a letter out with every episode, but I promise not to spam you. 
And I finally had the Lecazine reprinted that I put out last year. Uh, it's over 100 pages from 30-odd contributors featuring essays, poems, lists, recipes, illustrations, other bits and pieces. It's on Etsy for a fiver if you search for Lecazine or you can find the link on the Lecca Twitter. All proceeds go to Lewisham Food Bank, so any purchase is very gratefully received. I hope you're all keeping well and staying safe and calm in these weird times we're in. If you want some food-related distraction, drop me a line on Twitter or Insta and tell me your favourite self-isolation recipes. I would love to chat. I'll be back next month. See you then.